Almost every week, somebody will say to me, Pastor, you have been reading my emails. Or they will say, uh, maybe, maybe you heard a pastor, uh, acquaintance of mine said, a man came to him and he said, have you been talking to my wife? And he said, I don't even know your wife. And, uh, or people will come to me and, and they will say, how did you know that you were going to, how did you talk about just the very thing I was going to go through this week? Well, pastors don't have strange uh, psychic powers. What they have is uh, Bibles. And when you open a Bible and you teach the Bible clearly, then that's exactly what happens because the God who made you wrote the Bible. And so if you teach the Bible accurately and if you teach the Bible clearly, then it lands right on your soul right where you live. That's just the way it works. As you know, if you're regular here, we're in, we're making our way through the Gospel of Matthew on, uh, Sunday mornings, and we almost never deviate from that plan because it's really hard to improve on. On Sunday night, we're doing what we call a flyover of the Bible, and we're almost all the way through the Old Testament. So we're on the book of Obadiah. How many of you have read the book of Obadiah this week? Raise your hand. Yes, good children. It's only one chapter, so I mean, we're not going to knight you for that or anything. You could read it this afternoon, even if you watched a football game, like you could do it at halftime. It's so short. Shortest book in the Old Testament. And if you come back tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to have our deacon uh, dedication service tonight. It's a very special time in the life of our church, and we're going to preach the book of Obadiah, and we're going to have our normal feast of good Christian music and all that stuff. So we'll look forward to having you here tonight. But this is just what we do. We teach the Bible, and it lands square on our souls. That's the way it is, and that's really going to happen today when we look at what we're going to look at today. Now, when you going to when you read what we're going to look at today, because I'm preaching in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14 this morning. Now, when you read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, you're going to immediately think, oh, I know what this is about. This is about the Sabbath, because that's what it looks like it's about. But if you study it real carefully, you're going to see that the theme is really not the Sabbath. Even though the subject is the Sabbath, the theme is something else. And that theme is going to have a lot to do. I think it's, we got a message for evangel today. So let's take the Bible and look at Matthew chapter 12. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 14. Remain seated today as I just read this passage uh, to you. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. He began to pluck heads of grain. Uh, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David, when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane a Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on a Sabbath? That they might accuse him. 
And he said to them, What man is there among you as one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? Here's what we're going to do today. What I'd like to do is I'd like to explain a text, including answering some obvious questions that pop into your mind when you read a text like this. I want to try to explain uh, the text. Uh, and, and then what I would like to do is I would like to apply it. By means of explanation, let's just talk a little bit about this whole thing. It talks about the Sabbath. What is that? The word means rest. Of course, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you had a ceremonial Jewish law of the Sabbath. It was a day of rest, and there were also other Sabbaths that were in the Bible. The question that kind of comes to New Testament Christians is, does God expect New Testament Christians to keep the Sabbath? Are we required to keep the Sabbath? Are we required to keep Sabbaths? Some people say, well, yes, we are, because it's a part of, it's a, it went before God's law, that there was a Sabbath rest even going all the way back to creation. Therefore, since that's before creation, there's kind of a creation ordinance, and therefore all of God's people should keep a Sabbath. I don't believe that's true. I believe the Bible uh, teaches there was no Sabbath law before there was a Sabbath law in the Mosaic law or in, the, in, the, in, in Israel's civil law. And this was uh, civil law for Israel. It was also ceremonial law. In other words, it was something that pointed forward to something that was going to happen in the future, namely that Jesus Christ would die. Jesus Christ himself is the Sabbath. According to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, you see a real clear statement on that. Jesus is the Sabbath rest. He's the rest for our souls like we were talking about last week. And therefore, all of the Sabbath laws that were pointing forward, they're pointing forward to Jesus. And the scriptures teach that very clearly. So the Sabbath law was a ceremonial law that was fulfilled in Christ. And the Sabbath law is the fourth commandment of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not specifically and explicitly repeated in the New Testament. It's the only one that is not moral in nature. And so the, Sabbath, the Israel Sabbath law is not binding on New Testament Christians, according to the Bible. And the Bible says that very clearly. Um, some will say God rested on the seventh day and it means the Sabbath predates the law and we should keep the Sabbath. But there was no Sabbath law until it became law in Israel and that law was fulfilled in Christ. It's no longer binding on Christians. And so we're, we're free to set aside a day to especially worship the Lord, but we are not free to impose our, that like a law on other people. Notice what it says there in, or in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, and a substance is Christ. Another place in the Scriptures, in, in Romans 14 and verse 5, this is in the context where you had people that were coming out of Judaism, and they still were kind of had some of the trappings of Judaism and observed some of the days and so forth. And he said, let one, one per, esteems a day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. He kind of up to you. Just don't press that on other people. And so it's very clear in, in the Bible that that's not a binding command on New Testament Christians. In Jesus' time, the ruling party was the party of the Pharisees. 
And they went far beyond the law of God, the Old Testament law of God, the Sabbath law. They went far beyond that, adding all kinds of burdensome laws on top of the law that God gave that was good and wise and full of love. It was a wonderful thing for the land to rest, for the people to rest. They have a day of rest. It was a picture of Jesus, so it couldn't be something mean or ugly or ugly-spirited or difficult. It was something that was beautiful. But the Pharisees, the ruling party of the day, and it's the group that Jesus is ba- that are basically kind of ruling when Jesus is speaking here in Matthew chapter 12, they had made the Sabbath into a heavy burden. They used it like a tool to show kind of religious dominance over other people. They used it like a weapon to damage and hurt other people that were, su- that were supposed to be helping. In other words, God gave a Sabbath law because he loved people, because it would be good for people, and the religious Pharisees that were the ruling party of the day used it to do just the opposite but to hurt people that he loved so that kind of answers that question doesn't it i want to go forward and just look through the passage kind of a little at a time here this morning it's just kind of an interesting passage because it has a a number of different things just kind of verse at at a time in verses one and two we see jesus doing some things he's going to do some things all the way through this in verses one and two he allowed or he encouraged his disciples to break the pharisees laws the laws that they'd added to the sabbath law there was a gleaning law. It was a, it, was a, it was a beautiful and gracious, kind, loving Old Testament law of gleaning that would leave places around the edge of the field where travelers could go by and they could have something to eat. And Jesus either allowed or encouraged his disciples to eat, or he didn't tell them not to, obviously. We don't know exactly what happened because it doesn't specifically say, other than we know that they ate and the Pharisees called Jesus to task, saying, your disciples are working on the Sabbath. What they, they weren't breaking the Sabbath. They were breaking the rules that the Pharisees had added to the Sabbath. And he allowed them to do that. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus then responds to their question by using their hero, David, as an example of legitimate exceptions to the law. It's kind of interesting. And it was also, Jesus the master teacher says, let me tell you about David. That would have gotten their attention. They esteemed David. Verse 5, he used the priest of the temple as an example. Notice this going back to verse 3. But he said unto them, and it's interesting, have you not read? Which is, of course, a humorous thing to say to people who consider themselves experts of the law and have memorized most of it. Have you not read? And David, what David did when he was hungry. Notice in verse 1 what it says, the disciples were what? They were hungry. And that David was hungry, as if God cares if we're hungry. And interesting. So David was hungry. He had his men, he ate the showbread, these huge loaves of bread that were for ceremonial purposes. And God says, extenuating circumstances, okay with me that he did that. What about, you know, what about the priests that work in the temple? They work on the Sabbath. They violate the Sabbath. And they're blameless, he says. Jesus, who made the law, who is the law, personification of the law, said, that's okay. And so they're kind of, they must have been a gap. He used priests in the temple. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's asking them questions, and he's using the things that are sacred to them to kind of get all up in their business and to get in their face and to say, How, what right do you have to add to my law? In, in verse 6, he, he told them something just absolutely shocking, and not all of them probably understood it, but it was freighted with meaning. He said, one greater than the temple is here. He kind of says it in the third person. Well, who is he talking about? Who is the one greater than the temple? It was, it was him. It was him. I'm here, and I'm greater than your temple. One greater than the temple is here. It's like, look, ignorant. 
Did you read your Bible? Do you know what's going on? Do you recognize who I am? He says it in a much more subtle way, though. One greater than the temple is here. It's kind of like one of those things, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And so he says this this is rife with meaning. In verse 7, he challenges their understanding of the law. Look at that. If you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, quoting from the Old Testament, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So he's saying his disciples were without guilt, even though they broke the, Pharise- the law that the Pharisees added to God's law. And he said, if you, knew you, if you guys knew your Bibles, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. And so you've got to understand, there's humor, there's sarcasm, and Jesus is in their face. This is not subtle. It's very direct. He's challenging them. And then in verse 8, in the grand in-your-face challenge, he declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Look at it. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He says, I'm greater than your temple, and I'm the Lord of your Sabbath. Do you guys have any questions for me? He kind of, did you appreciate the manliness of Jesus? He was, uh, he was obviously brilliant. He was obviously a wise teacher. He was obviously humorous. He was obviously subtle. And he was obviously courageous. Kind of like him. Do you like him? Amen. <laughs> Can I get a witness on that? That, that? that shouldn't have been hard right there. Yeah, he's wonderful. Lois, the other day I decided I, I want to take her out for lunch. And I felt like the Lord was especially telling me to do that. So I called her and I said, the Holy Spirit told me to take you for lunch. She goes, isn't he nice? (laughs) It was like a worship moment. I said, he is so wonderful. He is so wonderful. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't Jesus wonderful? He's the one who tells you, get your wife out to eat every once in a while, gentlemen. Isn't he wonderful? And he's the Lord of the Sabbath and he's greater than the temple. And it's better than that. It's a lot better better than that. The whole thing of Matthew, you've got to remember, is just... Holy Spirit and Matthew teaming up to co-author a book (laughs) in order to say, this is who Jesus is. You're not going to reject him, are you? This is who Jesus is. Your whole life hangs on it. Your your eternity hangs on it. You you understand who he is, don't you? That's what the whole book is about. And here you've got a bad example. These knucklehead Pharisees who are brilliant in the law and totally missing the entire point of the law. They're blinded by their legalism. They're blinded by their legalism. Legalism blinds people to who Jesus is and what the Bible says. You can be an expert in the Bible and totally ignorant of what it says if you're into that legal, kind of legalism. Jesus is calling them out. Verses 9 and 10, then, he goes to a different place, but it's almost like you know, this dark cloud of pharisaical judgment kind of follows him, right? And he goes to the synagogue. He left there. He goes to the synagogue, but they weren't done with him, and he wasn't done with them either. Waiting at the synagogue is a man with a withered hand. This is a big deal. I mean, you're talking about not social services. You're talking about a guy who's unable to to take care of his family. You're talking about a poor, oppressed, hurting, pitiful human being pleading for God's mercy. And what do these guys do when Jesus shows up? You know, he must have, he doesn't say so in the text. He must have been saying, you know, can you help me? Can you heal me? In this, in Matthew. And they say to him, they use it as a challenge for their little petty Theological squabble. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Is you're not going to heal this guy, are you? It's like the guy's not even there. It's like he's not even a person. It's like they don't even care about the man. Jesus isn't like that. There was a man there with a withered hand. He's seeking healing. Without compassion for this poor man, without 
without regard for the fact that the healing Christ was in their midst, they immediately get out their little rule books and they start scouring their rule books for restrictions and they challenge him about whether it's legal to heal on the Sabbath. <laughs> they're, they're not the heroes of the story. Have you figured that out? So in verse 11, he says to them, again, with a question in rabbinical form, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Jewish teaching was rich with this, and it still is, they say today, that it's rich with like asking questions. It's a powerful way to get people to receive truth is to ask them questions. They say a woman was in the Middle East, and she was visiting a shop owner, and he was a Jewish man, and he had a bunch of uh, artwork, and she said, which one of these is your favorite? And he said, are you married? And she said, yes, why? If she had just said yes, that would have been the end of the conversation, but she said, yes, why? So she asked him a question. He said, which of your, she said, do you have children? He said, yes, I do. Why? He said, which of them is your favorite? He'd made his point without even making a a statement, just asking questions. Jesus was this brilliant rabbinical teacher who asked questions of people that just cut them to the heart. And he's still doing that today. He'll probably have a question for you a little bit later. He asked them, he says, of how much more value than is a man than a sheep? So do you guys have a sheep? Here's a guy with a withered hand just suffering, and his family's suffering, and, uh, and they, don't, they don't care about him at all. And they say to, say to Jesus, you're not going to heal him on a Sabbath, are you? And he says, well, which of you guys have you had a sheep? And it, you, know, you wouldn't lift it out. As, as a, and is a person, isn't a person more valuable than a sheep to you? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on this Sabbath. And I like verse 13, don't you love it? What's Jesus do? Here's the guy standing by going, while you guys are arguing, could you maybe you know, work a little uh, help this way? Jesus says to him, which is like they were missing the entire point. Jesus is there and they're missing that. Somebody greater than the temple is there, and they're missing that. The Lord of the Sabbath is there, and they're missing that. People are hungry, and they don't care. The guy with a withered hand is waiting to be healed, and they don't care. But Jesus does. And in verse 13, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. Aren't you glad he stretched out the right hand? Because Jesus said he made it like the other. I just... When I study the Bible, I see things like that. (laughs) He stretched out the hand, and he restored it as whole as the other. Oh, that's awesome. This is a cool story. Was any of his loved ones nearby to see it? Did it just course through the man's mind what he would be able to do? Did he always want to shake somebody's hand or lay a brick or work with stone or play ball or do something? He's got his hand restored. It's not withered anymore. What a cool thing. What do the Pharisees do? They must have just thought, oh, how wonderful this Jesus is, that with a word he can heal a man with a withered hand. What did they do? They went off on their own and they plotted how to destroy the one who is greater than the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath. They wanted to destroy him. Now, if that isn't blindness and ignorance and folly and foolishness and homicidal hatred, what is? How did good religious boys like that get so far away from the truth? 
They were blinded. They were blinded by legalism. Bet you're glad you're not that way, amen? Don't have any of that going on here. I'll tell you three things I think we should think about when we look at this passage together uh, today. I, I guess I like to say it like this. Love is not blind because love sees all that stuff. But legalism is blind. Love is not blind, but legalism is blind. Look at the first thing. Love is the heart of the law of God. Love is the heart of the law of God. Think about that. Love is the heart of the law of God. Look in the text in verse, uh, look in the text in verse 1, and notice this about the, the disciples. What, 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 how are the disciples described? They were what? They were, they were verse 1, the disciples were hungry. They were hungry. You love people and they're hungry, you care about that. It's that simple. This, Jesus used an example of David, and David was what? He was hungry. It's like you're supposed to care about that, that people are hungry. Isn't that interesting? I don't think these guys were starving. I don't think they were starving. Don't you say that? Like, I haven't eaten all day. I'm starving. Well, <laughs> you're probably not going to starve in a day, you know. It'll probably take a couple days. It'll take a three, two or three days maybe. Oh, my goodness, a man can go 40 days without eating. No, they weren't starving, but they wanted to eat. They were hungry. God, Jesus cared about that. Imagine how much he cares about starving people. Poor people. He cared about his disciples were hungry. He concerned himself with that when he taught people, let's get some food to these people. We like them after all. That's interesting to me. So there you see that there in verse 1 and 3. Look at verse 9. He departed went to the synagogue. There was a man with a withered hand. He cared about the guy with a withered hand. He cared about the hungry people. He cared about the guy with a withered hand. And verse 12, he's, he, he reaches kind of a climax of this of how much more value then is a man than a sheep. Do you guys get it? People are valuable. You're supposed to cherish them. You're supposed to like them. You're supposed to love them. You're supposed to care about what's going on with them. If you know me, that's the way you are. Jesus is saying love is the heart of God's law. You guys don't understand a law or you'd love people. That's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Let me read this to you. It's kind of interesting. First Timothy chapter 1, it says, The purpose of the commandment is love. In other words, the thing I want the law to accomplish is it ends in love. Uh, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, the end of the commandment is love. This is not the clearest passage on this in the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you look in Romans uh, 14, and we'll do that here, they just got a minute. Listen as I read to you from Romans chapter 14 about what the Bible says about love and the law. You can see this in the book of James. It's all over the New Testament. Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The opposite is true. You don't love, you, you don't fulfill the law. I don't care how many rules you have. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the heart of God's law. If you really want to get the heart of God, the heart of the law, then you love. And if you don't love, you don't get the heart of God. Now notice the second thing. If you don't love, you really don't know your Bible either. 
You may know your Bible verses, but you don't know your Bible. It is possible to memorize the Bible, like these guys did, and to miss the whole point of the Bible. You can be a Bible expert, but if it doesn't drop from your head to your heart, it's not going to do you any good except inoculate you against truth, make you a really dangerous and free stinky spiritual person. Here's exactly what they this is. You can see this very clearly when you look there in verses 3 and 5 and 7, where Jesus kind of gets in their face by saying, Have you not read? Verse 3, verse 5, Have you not read? Verse 7, But if you had known, all of them were again sarcastic, humorous, biting challenges to them. You guys know your Bibles. How come you don't know this? Love is the heart of God's law. And if you don't love, you really don't know the Bible even if you consider yourself a Bible expert, if you don't have love for people that hurt, if you don't care when people are hungry, if you don't have compassion for other people, even your enemies, Jesus said, then don't call yourself a Bible scholar because you're not. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the Lord of the Bible. That's what's going to be next. If you don't love, you don't know your Bible. And if you don't love, you don't know God. If you don't love, you don't know God. I'm on real firm footing right here. I won't do it because of time, but if we went to 1 John, and I would recommend that you take your Bible, take like a pink highlighter or something, and go to 1 John this afternoon and just mark all the verses about loving one another in 1 John. You will end on your knees. Because it's saying if you are a Christian, you love people. And if you don't love people, you're not a Christian. And the surefire way to tell if you're a Christian is not examine the man's doctrinal statement or know what he can reproduce you know, on, a, on a doctrinal test, but does he love people? Because if the love of God dwells in him, he loves people. But if he doesn't love people, the love of God doesn't dwell in him. And this is just like, this is like put on your steel-toed boots stuff, isn't it? For anybody here? You don't love, you don't know God. So you've missed the heart of God. You're ignorant or blind to the heart of God. You really don't know your Bible. You really don't know God. You know, back in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that I just referred to when I was talking about the end of the commandment is love, it goes on in verse 6 and says, from which, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, batting their gums, right? Desiring to be teachers of the law, it says, understanding neither what they say or the things which they affirm. They're ignorant. They're teachers. They're ignorant teachers. They're just beating the air. They're just talking. Why? If you, you can speak eloquently and you don't have love, you don't know God. If you can quote large parts of the Bible, but you don't love people, you don't know the Bible really, and you don't know God, and you've missed the heart of God. If you're an expert in the law of God, but there are people with withered hands around you that you don't care about, then you don't know God. So that's something to think about. In fact, if you think about this, if you don't know God and you've missed the heart of God, and you don't know your Bible, then you're really not for him. You're really against him. And that's where you're going to end up. Verse 14, that's what it says. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. That's just, uh, 
beyond scandalous, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the one who blessed babies and raised people from the dead and healed people, restored the sight to blind people, forgave sins and restored harlots and all of that. Jesus is standing right there. He's like, he could have delivered them from their religion (laughs) and he could have made them real followers. They could have had real religion. The Bible talks about real, true religion. Let me give you an example of this. If you talk about people and you don't care about people, It's a sign that your religion is defiled and corrupted and that you're deceiving yourself. And where did I get that idea? If you're sharp, you know I got it from the book of James. Let me read it to you. James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in trouble and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Let me tell you that religion is bad. Good religion is good. The kind of religion that makes you visit orphans and the fatherless and widows and keep a person unspotted from the world, that's good religion. But most religion is bad religion. It's the kind that kind of talks or has all kinds of, you know, makes a big scene, but, but but is willing to talk about people. Doesn't bridle its tongue. That's just a biblical example, right? We can't say we know our Bible and we love God if we write people off that are irritating to us. We can't say we know our Bibles and we love God if we got people, especially other Christians, that we don't consider, that we don't love. We don't have the freedom to say, I'm not going to love you, but I'm still a follower of Jesus. You just don't have that freedom. What kind of ignorance, what kind of arrogance, what kind of sinfulness would it be to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I just don't like his children my friend if you don't like my children i doubt if you like me if we just kind of go together like that right I'm, I'm just including my dog in there too i'm just telling you you don't if you you mean to my dog I, i'm probably going to have trouble liking you you know i'm going to have to obey god to like you if you're mean to my kids my dog if you're mean to jesus children you can't say jesus i love you just hate your children seriously And don't call it religion. Don't say that you're really conservative so you don't like all those inferior people out there that got the, you know, look what they're wearing and look what they did and look at who they, where they've been and they don't have convictions like I have and I'm, I'm kind of a model of what God wants and they're not quite living up to the standard. Maybe I'll frown at them until they change. You Pharisee, repent. Don't call yourself a follower of Jesus. That's not what Jesus was about. Jesus broke into a smile when he saw hurting people. Jesus loved people that hurt. Jesus was quick to forgive people who had filthy backgrounds that nobody wanted to be around. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Do you know him? Do you want to be like him? You can be. He said that, his, that Christ-likeness could be formed in us through a mir- miracle of conversion and, and sanctification, which we will talk about more later because a lot of you asked me last week, tell me more about sanctification, and I will. You just have to keep coming back and never miss a week. You never know when I might talk about it. What a beautiful thing it is where there is love. Amen? Who could argue with that? (laughs) A pastor, I read a cool book this week called Red Like Blood. Pastor, uh, a guy named Joe Coffey and Bob Bevington. Great, a good, interesting read. And they said, uh, Joe Coffey, the pastor church in Hudson, Ohio, and, and at Christmas time they decided what they are going to do in their church is 
that in their church they were going to do 5,000 random acts of generosity, which really weren't quite random. They were like led by the Spirit. So the people were taught, pray and ask God to guide you into an act of generosity at Christmas time. And then when you do this act of generosity, it might be something small like buying somebody coffee. It might be something big like paying somebody's electric bill. But whatever it is, then I want what, what they're supposed to do is just hand them this little card that said, you've been gifted, and then just say, Merry Christmas. And it's a testimony to them. And that would be fun, wouldn't it? So this is a pretty good-sized church, and they decided they were going to do 5,000 random acts of generosity. There's a guy, Noel, and he's a Lebanese Christian, dark-skinned, nice-looking guy, big smile. He's praying and asking God, what do you want me to do? And he goes out, and he goes to Walmart. And he's walking around Walmart a little bit nervous, and he's praying, God, lead me to the right person, and I'm going to do a random act of generosity. And so he gets in line behind a lady in a wheelchair. She's got a young woman with her. The lady's in the wheelchair, and she gets up there. She gets all of her stuff finally out, and they ring it all up, and it's quite a large order, and then she starts swiping cards, and none of them are going to be approved, right? So finally he just graciously smiles, and he steps up. And he goes, excuse me, but do you mind if I just pay for this? The cashier says, you can't do that. He says, well, sure I can. Why not? And she turns the monitor around, and the purchase is $192. But Noel had some cash, and he just took his card, and he went, and he swiped the card. And she said, the lady in the wheelchair says, you don't know what this means to me. My husband just died, and I'm buying these kind of things to be prepared for the funeral. And the cashier goes, praise the Lord! <laughs> praise the Lord, the cashier at Walmart. He starts saying, praise the Lord, and Noel was embarrassed. He said, I just beat it out of there. <laughs> now, why is it we love stories like that? Because what Jesus said is true. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And as a church, may God help us see people who are hungry and poor with withered hands and broken hearts and broken spirits that are here among us and out where we live. They're precious to God. They really don't need us to force our opinions on them. It's not our job to get them to comply with God's rules. It's not. We can't do that. And it's certainly not our job to get them to comply with our additions to God's rules. It's not. It's not discipleship for us to force our extra-biblical culture on people. It's not. It's not discipleship. It's our job to love them like Christ loves them. It's our job to help deliver to them the gospel so they'd be recovered from the enemy where he's taken them captive to do his will. It's our job to explain the gospel to them with our words and with our lives. It's to be kind of passionate about that and to be obsessed with that. Every one of us, 600 members of Evangel living out to the name. Actions that are true and undefiled religion. Keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Loving one another so that they would really believe that we would love them and the love of God dwells in us. It's what James said. It's what Jesus is teaching in this text. It's the most powerful force on earth. Christian love. People with broken hearts and defiled souls and troubled lives and growling stomachs and withered hands and fractured families. They need to see us love one another. Even though that's hard sometimes. And they need to be loved. And we, need, and we need to see that love is the rich soil in which conviction and repentance and faith and holiness grow. When we, can, when we create an atmosphere of love, all those other good things grow in that soil that we create with an atmosphere of love. Repentance grows in an atmosphere of love. Saving faith grows in an atmosphere of love. Let's Renew our devotion to God by renewing our commitment to love one another, even as rough around the edges as we are. 
If there's somebody here in the room and they're like kind of unloving to you or they haven't treated you right or you just don't kind of like the way they look at you, hey, you're a Christian. They're a creation of God. They may even be a child of God. You love them. Love them. And, do, and, and make no exceptions. If you wanted this message in one simple sentence, you could say it in a tweet like this. <laughs> if you don't love, you don't know your Bible, and you don't know God, and if you don't love, your religion is worthless. You know why? That's why lost people understand the Guiding Hands Privacy Refuge. They go by, and we have this big, you notice we have the big sign that says Evangel Baptist Church is blue and has a light on it. We keep it lit all the time. We want people to see it. And here's the times of services. Come on in, right? And, but lost people go, the little sign down on the ground, the little sandwich board looks temporary. A lot of times, have you noticed this? People that maybe don't know the Lord, or maybe they just go to someplace, go to church somebody else because they're not using good judgment. And, and you, you'll say to them, you know, you know about our church? And they'll go, yeah, is that the one with the guiding hands? Well, like, yeah, that's us. Why is that? People understand love. We put a big sign out there that says, we hate abortion. It's almost, it would be almost like we say, no, we hate anybody who's ever thought about having an abortion. It would almost be like we're saying that, right? But that's not what we do, is it? We've got the little hand out there. Because love is something that when God enlightens people, they, they, they're more likely to understand, and that's the atmosphere of love is the soil in which repentance grows. And so what a wonderful thing it would be for our church to devote ourselves again to love. Joe, the guy I was talking about earlier, the pastor, his brother was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident. And it threw him off. He actually left the ministry for a while, left the pastor for a while. just couldn't minister to people. He's so brokenhearted. During that time, he was a school chaplain. There was a girl in a school, and he said, she's a project. You, you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about a kid that really doesn't fit the Christian school mode <laughs> model, you know. And this girl did the, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, with her grooming and everything just to stand out. And she gave the teachers trouble, and she was always getting in trouble. The guy knew her really well because they are always bringing her to his office. And her name was Tracy, and, you know, she'd sit down, and he'd always be talking to her. She's as rough as could be. He said when he talked with her, he could always imagine her with a drink in her hand and a cigarette because she's just a rough girl. She didn't. It was a Christian school. But he said that's what he always imagined. And she kind of had a rough voice, and she was always getting in trouble. And he said that she came in as a sophomore, and he was sure that any week she was going to wipe out because she was just always getting in trouble. But she made it to her senior year, and then she made it halfway through her senior year. And after that, he just thought it was amazing that she was still kicking. You know, she's still in this school, this girl, Tracy, the project. <laughs> he, he actually had her come to his office after Christmas. First of the year, she comes in, she kind of sits down. He says, well, what's up, Tracy? What are you doing now? She goes, did you hear I was a teacher's assistant? He just couldn't, he couldn't disguise his shock. He said, what? Are you serious? Because, you know, if you're a teacher's assistant, you're the teacher's pet because you're a model student. And he says, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Whose assistant are you? Mrs. E, she said. He's like, are you serious? She was a Baptist. She was a rule person. She was a legal person. She was a hard nose. Like some of you. And, uh, and, and so he says, man, she says, I hated her. Everybody hated her. She was like, rules, 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 you know, all the time. He goes, well, what happened? She said, well, I got kicked out of my house. My mom kicked me out. I thought, well, that's not a big deal. Yeah, I'll just, I'll go with, be with my dad. So I called my dad, and my dad said his girlfriend didn't want me around. So I didn't really have anywhere to go. And I was kind of bouncing from one of my friends to another, and she found out about it. 
around Thanksgiving time, she called me on the phone. And she said, you know, we're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner, and I would just so love to have you be a guest at our Thanksgiving dinner. Tracy, would you come? She looked out the window, and she says, I didn't go, but I've loved her ever since. May God work among us until evangel is characterized by this kind of powerful, redemptive love. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you today for your word, even when it's kind of hard on us. Please, I pray, Lord, in my life, please, please, I pray, Lord, in the life of the families of our church, please, I pray, in the life of evangel, Give us a renewal of the kind of love that you always have had beating in your heart for people with withered hands and broken spirits and crushed lives. Help us to love one another. And Lord, in that way we will know that we know your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you tonight.